usually, I mean, we're meyachet this for speak about uh, Godel, whose yard size is going to be in the next month, and the one that I would that it I would want to speak about is an incredible, a very very unusual person, as somebody who um, I guess in many ways is is an extremely unusual balshita, and that was the Alta Navardic. First, um, we always try to uh, say where I got the information from, because um, the, a lot of people feel no need to find, no need to verify or or to find Makaris for stories, just put stories down. The, the probably best one written about the Alta in terms of someone who A, understood some of the Shittas, B, was careful to take things with Makairis and three, put a certain context, is Rebdov Katz in Tnuwa Samusa. Rebdov Katz was a Slabotka Balmusa, wasn't from the Sheet of Navardic, but was acquainted with it. Um, Rebdov Katz lived in Tel Aviv, it was Nifter 60s, and, and he was a uh, very Hasha person. And he wrote about all the leading Musa figures, and his things is probably most reliable, plus he brings Makairis wherever he got his stuff from. Um, there's another, there's something called Moiris Akdailim, which is stories about the big Bali Musa, written by Chaim Zaychik, who was in Avartika. And those stories are also reliable, except there's no Seder to the stories. There's no, it's not in topic, not, not chronology, it's different mices. So it's hard to build uh, uh, something out of it. And then they've put out two volumes on Avartik, um, by in Avartika. It's The stories are more, with a lot more color to it and a lot more. Um, passion, but certain things are omitted and so on. But the one I think that Noah Samusa is probably the best overall. Um, and then s- some small things have been written here and there. The, um, I personally knew the daughter of the Alta Navardic. Um, she lived underneath my father-in-law's house. Her name was Rebbe Zinyafin. She was his youngest daughter from his second wife. And um, I knew her. I knew the, some of the families. So that's the sum total of the Makairis. Um, he was born in 1848 in Lita, and his father was a, uh, a big, a big Talmud Chacham, very, very um, strict person, very, very a person was kol kulei nothing else. He himself was a very wild person as a young person and. Possibly those Tchunis kept on, you know, kept him in his old age also. Extremely smart, very, very wild. He tamed down and began to sit and learn. He sat and learned because a Yidah Talmud Chacham. He got married at a young age. And he, he, when he got engaged, he made up with his father-in-law that he would not have to work. His father-in-law would work and support him. He wanted to sit and learn. His father-in-law passed away between when he got engaged to when he got married. And now, not only did he have to support a wife, he had to support, take over the business, his father had a business, to take over the business and support um, the rest of the family. I think there were another seven, eight people in the family. And he wanted to break the shidduch. His father wouldn't let him. His father said, you committed yourself no matter what. He got married and he became a businessman and a successful businessman. He was very good at it. He was um, a hustler and he was bright and worked hard. 
he also set aside time to learn, but he was, but, but he was mostly in the business. Somebody suggested that he go meet Rebisol Salanta. He met him once or twice. Rebisol Salanta invited him to come to his Mesilsa He came and it affected him tremendously. At the 13th shear, he got up and he decided, that's it. He's leaving everything and he's going back to sit and learn full time and Parnassa for his family's whatever it is, it is. Rav Salanta tried to dissuade him. He didn't think that such an extreme move um, was right. His father was very upset. He felt that that was kind of a very positive move. It wasn't uh, thought out, it wasn't Yasha's, it wasn't right. Um, he decided he would do one more business deal and with that he would leave business and as he went to do the deal he said to himself I don't understand if I'm supposed to be sitting learning what am I doing in business and he dropped it on the spot and and he went to Kovna which was it had Rabbi Sol Salanta had established a Kail Kovna Kail and Rabbi Sol Salanta and, and he went to learn there he left his wife behind um, with a child already. He um, left behind uh, his family, everything, and sat alert. He uh, didn't support his wife. And he w- didn't move her to Kovna either. He was extremely... Um, he, 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 he decided he wants to put himself completely learning, and that's what he did. And there were a lot of Ikuchim. Rebitzel Blaza was there, was upset, he held it's not right, and he fought, he held his own, and that was part of the things that he fought about. At some point later, he brought his wife and child to Kovna. He had another two children with her. And then um, his wife died as she was giving birth to the third child. It, something changed in him. He gave up his three kids basically to other families to raise them. One to a sister, one to someone else, one, one to another person. And he decided to shut himself away from the world and be completely between himself and Kaddish Baruch Hu. He moved into, there was a, a Yid at Sadiq his name was Shleimer, Reb Shleimer, the tinsmith. He gave him a room in his house. He, he, the, the back of the room opened up into the courtyard. So he made a tnai, they made a wall around between his door and the courtyard. So it was a private yard, nobody else could walk in. He locked the front door, the door between him and the rest of the house, nobody could walk in. He had like two bells with a hole in the wall, like a little dumbwaiter. And whenever he wanted something, he would put a note there, ring the bell. They would come and pick up the note. They would bring him what he wanted, ring the bell, and he would pick it up. He wanted to have no contact with anybody for, he wanted, he planned it for seven years. It created a tremendous stir. Um, people were, uh, some people were very, very upset. Some people made fun of it. Rabbi Yitzchak he was the Rav Kovna, and Rabbi Yitzchak was the God Lador, sent him a few times his personal shamas to tell him that it's wrong, he needs to stop it, he needs to drop it. 
and um, he uh, refused. The maskilim made tremendous fun of it. The man with the two holes, he had a hole for fleshiks and milchiks, and everything about it pointed to what was what they said was wrong with Musser and Frumkite. Here you have a person who threw his family away, made himself into, into some sort of crackpot with this big wall around his room, and so on and so forth. Um, if a year and a half into his bedidas, someone the, the, the mas, somebody, the, it seemed the Maskilim tried to put a package of counterfeit notes, money into his apartment. They threw some counterfeit coin uh, money into his place and they called the police. And it was a nace that he wasn't, they didn't find it, whatever. And he, so he sort of, he sort of made it, he started going out, but not for much. He wouldn't come to Shul, he wouldn't come there. He, he, did, he took the wall down maybe, but he still was a parish. But he started seeing Anashim Doilim and he started seeing the Alta of Kelm. The Alta of Kelm um, was, had, had for two years, he used to visit him regularly and the Alta would fight with him about his derech. He said the derech is wrong, this, this whole thing of precious is not right, the world needs today people that will go out and um, and be Marbetzter. And finally, when he decided the altar was right, he picked himself up and never looked back again. And he and he made a 180 degree turn. It's incredible. His part of his personality was that once something is emis, then nothing stood in his way. He he never made gradual changes. He changed on a dime. They say that the Alta Kelm told Mova that Rabbi Sol Salanta once met a parish. In Europe, in Lita, especially in those days, Prushim were, it was a common religious phenomenon. A person closed off of the world was only Dovakakach Barbu. So the Alta told him, so Rabbi Sol Salanta told his parish, You spend your day milking Malachim? What are you doing up there? Like, 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 like what's. And they told Rabbi Sol Salanta that somebody is at Sadik Nista. He said, in our generation, I don't understand how a nista can be a tzaddik. There's so much that needs to be done. What's he doing there? And at some point, he was Moedal Emes, and he dropped it. And as radical as he was in what he had done until now with his precious, he now um, began to go out. There's a piece missing here that I didn't say yet. He he um, he stayed in his house of of Reb Shlomo the, the, the tinsmith, and he was a very big tzaddik. and and he had one daughter who shidduchim wasn't going so well. She got older, and a little older, and finally she became engaged. And a month or so before he was she was supposed to get married, the chassan dropped the shidduch, and they were devastated. And uh, Rabbi Yosef uh, Yezel was his name. Rabbi Yosef Yezel is a little Horowitz. Rabbi Yosef Yezel heard them crying and screaming. Yes, what happened? They told him. He said, I owe a tremendous amount of Akar Satoiv. I will marry her. And he gave it to Kaf, which is like a Shavua. He gave a handshake. It made a tremendous rash. Um, first of all, people felt that there was something unseemly about it. People would say that they had been meeting all the time because he lived in the house. 
and people felt she was way beneath his station. She was a simple girl from a simple home. He was a, 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 a big, a very chashu person. Whether he agreed or disagreed, he was a tremendous Talmud Chacham. He was a giant, and he said no. This is what he promised, and he married her. But the night was he would never support her. He would be free to do what he felt was right, and he would do precious, not as precious, but he basically spent most of his life, what was left of his life, he spent um, going from place to place making yeshivas. So, in the 80s or so, was when he, he had this change, in the mid-80s, uh, 1880s, he had this change of heart, and, re- and said, now is the time to go out and to do, and he began going all over Lita, making yeshivas. Most yeshivas he made were for younger kids or whatever, and he went place to place, building, doing, and then finally those yeshivas he decided the Talmidim that had learned in the younger yeshivas needed a big yeshiva, and he made a yeshiva in the Vardok, um, for them. He still hadn't brought his wife, he was living there, and his wife still lived in Kavna, and it wasn't until later that he um, brought her over. Was incredible um, hanhagis, very unusual hanhagis. He made yeshivas, and he had his own derech. We'll talk about the derech soon. Incredibly demanding derech. He made yeshivas all over Lithuania, Russia, and at his heyday, he had 60, 70 yeshivas at least. And they were they were they were very different than your typical yeshivas. Um, many of the gdolim that we know today, they they would come to a town. People, st- you have to understand, this was a period of time when Yiddishkeit was going downhill. People stopped sending kids to yeshivas. They they didn't want them to go matlonim. They were becoming socialists and communists and Zionists and everything else under the sun. They would go into a town, and part of that hugger, we'll talk a little bit more about it, was. Um, they would go into a town, how did they make a yeshiva? They would take out a map of uh, Lithuania and Russia, and Baruch Hashem, there's plenty of place, no lack of place in Russia and Lithuania, they would stick a pin in. The pin would land on, I don't know, Bursk, Bryarsk. So they say, oh, wow, Bryarsk really needs a yeshiva. So, you be the Rosh Yeshiva, and you be the Mashkiach, and they would send them off, they would supply them sometimes with a coat, and sometimes, and they would especially tell them, since you're having, you're making a yeshiva, you need a good supply. You should learn Shai Bitochen two or three times over before you go. I'm serious. That, that was the yeshiva. They would come to town, they would come into the shul, and after Shachris, they would give a clap. We, we, we're pleased to announce that the yeshiva of, of Nevadic of Bjorsk has just been founded, and, you know, we're learning here. They would go to the street, and they would pick up kids, anybody, anybody that they could, that they could schlep in, they slept in. It made no difference who, what, when. Um, and they would make a yeshiva. It came lunchtime or supper time. Then one of the two would go to the houses and ask if there's any leftover food and give it out. That was a yeshiva. Reb Shul Birnbaum, Reb Shul Brudny, all of them came from that. They were like the equivalent of Chabad bringing people into the truth movement. They were the ones who brought kids off the street. And they would literally tear them away. They, they would develop them as Beit Torah. And then if they, if they became, you know, Chashev, they would go on to the yeshivas. This was all over Europe. 
um, they even some chassidusha would send there because they felt that it was safe. At least you could keep the kid from. Uh, I once spoke to a person who was a bit chassidish, a person who didn't have any much kind words for the Litvish yeshiva world, but he told me about himself. He said if not for Nevadic in his town, he would be a Shegetz. He said the Rebbe, with all due respect, had no yeshiva, didn't care to have a yeshiva, and Levada came in, they made one of these crazy yeshivas, they schlepped him in, they made him into a, a, a bentayra, into something, and he moved on in life. That was, that was the, the yeshivas. Their hugs were incredible, and we'll speak more about the shittas and the derech, and we'll talk about it. Um, this went on until World War I. We think of World War II, we, we, we talk a lot about the, the Holocaust and everything. World War I was, in terms of the tkufa, was incredibly horrendous. It was anarchy. What happened was the Germans and Russians were fighting, but then the Russian, the Russian, Russia disintegrated. It, the communists didn't take over right away. There were there was a, there were years and years of fighting of different groups, communists and anti-communists and pro-Tsarists and anarchists and everything. The only tsarashova between all the groups was that they would make pogroms on Jews. That was the only tzadashavah. Whether you were pro-communist or anti-communist, the Jew was killed. And, and they killed out hundreds of thousands of people in starvation and, and everything. And they were active in the war years. They were not Navardic. He said, even though many of the Jews in Lithuania, my, I know for my father, they, they were hoping Germany would take over because Germany was light years ahead of Russia in terms of civilization and menschlichkeit and treating Jews. He was very scared of German Ascola, and he kept on going behind wherever Russia was. He ended up in World War I with his Talmidim in Kiev, in Ukraine. That became the center. Kiev, for the first few years of war, Ukraine was actually quite peaceful, and then it, it was Bedlam. He finally, in 1920, there was a big typh typhoid uh, uh, epidemic, and he, um, he he refused to allow anyone to treat his Talmudim except for himself. He personally would take them and wash them and clean them. Everything he felt nobody else could do it. He was a man in the 70s, close to 70, and he died in that in that epidemic. Um, he was Nifter in 1920, about. Um, in 1965, the um, the government decided they were going to build a park on the base of Kvarish. They allowed people to take out bodies, and his body was removed and brought to Haramluchus, and it is in Haramluchus uh, today. That was the Alter Vadim. His active years were basically from 1985 till 1920. That was the, the Tkufa, maybe 1990. That was the Tkufa of his active life. I want to talk a little bit about Ashitas and Drachim, because that was the very incredible part. He was he was turned on by Rishol Salanta's Musa. And the understanding yourself and knowing whether or not you're, you're genuine is the most important thing. But he was an extremist. Um, he knew no quarter. Everything and anything until the extreme. So, he would, Lamashal, um, Davring, in most yeshivas was Galassan. There was a certain, especially the Litvish mindset, 
was very, very mihusa, um, gentle, thoughtful, deliberate. In him, in 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 the Vardic, it was a fire. It, it, it was the, the, the screaming and yelling and and milling and running. He 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 felt it was fake. He said, Kelm was the Musa that believed most strongly in discipline and order and structure. He said if he was able to, he would take a sledgehammer, walk into the Kelm base Medrash, and destroy every piece of furniture in its place. He felt it was, it was th- that type of, of um, that type of Mahalach was not, you would fool yourself. So scream, his, the Musa Shmuzen, they were screaming and yelling and, and, and people crying. It, it was extremely, I remember um, in Yerushalayim, he had a Talmud Rabbi Tzian Brook, who was a very gentle, big tzaddik. He had a, he had the yeshiva with Torres Moshe, is Nevardik, that where Torres Moshe used to be on Shmuel Novi. Those who know, that was the building he built. And Elul, it was, uh, it was sort of attractive. People would come here to Musashmuzen. He would speak by Shalshudis, and the Musashmuzen Shalshudis had two halves to it. There was like a regular Musashmuz, and then. They would close the lights. It was like after the zman already, and he would do something called his iris, where he would speak um, much more like intimate, like it wasn't a formal shmuz, talking to yourself, and being sort of very open with yourself. He would be talking to himself and to everybody else, and you would build up to a pitch and say, "So we're doomed and and we're helpless, and the only thing to do is scream at our lungs, Hashivena Hashem Elecha." And everybody would yell out Hashivenu. That was that was the nusach of Nevarik, completely getting things fired up with an extraordinary rischa, and and that was seen as being something that was at least had a havamid of being genuine. So the first one was the level of 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 his spilus and his iris, and so on. The second thing was he innovated all sorts of interesting things. In, in, in most of the yeshivas, they had Vadim and Chaburis. What he had over here was something called the Burj, the Burs, which means a stock market, a marketplace. And once a day, there would be like this open house kind of, where people would talk to each other about Yerushimayim. Some would come and say something like, you know, I need an Eitzah for Gaiva. I'm willing to pay you two Eitzahs that I picked up for us mother if you give me one Eitzah for Gaiva. And, or you would pick up somebody and say, I think you're having real problems with your Yetzar for COVID. Let me give you Musa. Or vice versa. A person would come to somebody else and say, and, and it, was, it was sort of his... He said, I understand something. In business, you're all day long looking for Eitzes. Why, why are you a Shemaim? Nobody's looking for Eitzes. And that was very much part of, of, of what Yeshiva was like. Hefkeris. In other words, people possessiveness was seen to be a terribly bad midah. And um, so people... If you had a pair of shoes, somebody else would take it. If, if, if you had a new jacket, somebody else would borrow it. There was a complete sense of no possessiveness. Hefkeris. You know, it, it, nothing is, is mine, nothing is this, nothing is that. And, and that was, you wear something dirty. The, the, the Alta Nevarik himself was once sitting together with Gedoy at a at a table. And he felt 
a little bit, I guess they were being mechabedim or something. So one person said it, was saying a shikotari, another person said that. He looked at his plate and he says, wow, the food is really good here. And it, it, was, it was demeaning. And he did it because he, he wanted to be totally, totally, it, it, that was the midah, to be completely oblivious. They worked on something called amitsus. And this is probably the midah they was famous for. And it stood them instead. He said, you know, our biggest Yitzhahara, and in Europe it was, is we are constantly worried about how other people, what other people care, what other people think about us. That was like, <laughs> it was always about, you know, does it look nice, does it look right? And, and he would give Misholem situations, real life situations, where people do what's wrong because they want other people to look at them in a certain way, chashev. And and his 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 one of the Ica trainings of something called amitsus, which means courage, or translated in in, the, in in colloquial, don't give a damn about what the world thinks about you. And they would do crazy things so that people they would go into thirty of them would show up at a very wealthy man's house and say we wanted to have mincha here, and they would have an avarik mincha with screaming and yelling and this and that. <laughs> And, and it was it was sort of a a um, you know or they would go into the famous stories of buying nails in in, in people don't understand a, um, a drugstore in 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 Europe was a very chashev place and it was looked very chashev and you know he would have a disaster picture it was very chashev and they'd walk in and ask for this for that it, they they did everything so that people could not they couldn't care less about what people think about them. Um, I'll, there was somebody who had a yeshiva, mentioned later, Reb uh, Gershon Liebman, he was one of the, probably the only one who, who re-established yeshiva that in Paris. And a Talmud of his was a chavrusa in the mirror. He told me like two stories about how Reb Gershon was oblivious to what people thought about him. He said, um, one, he, he would. He had a kviyas once a day. He would read the the the, Modia, the Hebrew newspaper from saw He would get it. He would read it in his room. He said you could walk into his room anytime without knocking. If he was reading the newspaper, he didn't. There was no like little little kind of pull like spasnish. Maybe I shouldn't. I know something. I was here and I'm reading it. So, so I must think that it's good. So why do I care what somebody else thinks? Why is somebody else's thinking about me that maybe is chashev, not that chashev? Why does it make a difference? It makes no difference. He had no sense of having any type of discomfort with the other person around him. And he said they were once in Paris, in the Grand Central Station, the train station. Paris is not like New York, where you have all sorts of, you know, where, where you know, sort of friendly to Jews. Isn't that? Paris is very, very not... A friend told you, he had to do mincha, so he stood in the middle and daven mincha, and he said, with all the angry stares and all the this, all that, he couldn't care less. It didn't mean a thing to him. That was that was him, and this was a Talmud of the altar. The altar couldn't care less, and that was he built and Talmud to work on it. That that, you know, it makes no difference. They worked on bitachon in crazy ways. The, the altar himself never knew where anything would come from. And he, 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 he funded hundreds of yeshivas. I mean, he had yeshivas all over. And, and he would never, ever, ever think twice where it's coming from. 
What is said something? Akash Baruch gives, Akash Baruch gives. And they'd have crazy stories with the last minute. This boy that I'm talking about, that I told you about my Chavrusa, he said they would go on three-day hikes without taking along anything. Because of Bitochen, to learn Bitochen. And the Alton Vadik said, if somebody learns Bitochen, but hedges his bets, it's like learning how to swim and you're tied still to the, to, to the shore. You'll never learn how to swim that way. You have to plunge in and believe in Munich Shleimah. Um, so Bitochen was an extremely important. Being choshed yourself on your midas. In other words, always assuming that you're lying to yourself. And midas emes was an extraordinary... And he himself wouldn't take any money for his family to live on, when he was, even though he was working for the yeshiva. And when the yeshiva had a... When the yeshiva... When they had chnuks for the big building, he wouldn't let his family attend chnuks he said, it's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't share with you. It's the yeshiva. So why are you coming? Just because your family it doesn't belong to the family. It belongs to the yeshiva and that's it. And his own son's wedding, he, he, he looked like one of the participants. He ref- it's a daughter's wedding from Yafins. And, and his, his extraordinary hugger of always thinking, you know, of, of, of going to an extreme to avoid getting any benefit from anything or anywhere, anywhere. That was, those were some of his primary shittas in, in Anhaga. It caused, there were, there were a lot of people that were antagonistic to him. They felt, you can't act crazy like that. It's extreme, and so on. But even the people who were against him had phenomenal derchats for him. In other words, everyone respected him as being a big person and a true person. And even people that he fought against, they would sometimes go and invade a shul, take over the shul for yeshiva, and and <laughs> it, it was it was not it, you know I mean they felt it was theirs, they felt whatever it was, but people had begrudging respect because the man was coolish and shemaim. He never he he died. He was about seventy or so. He never wore a coat. He never he ran. He he was always like a young person, you know, going place place. They would, wherever they traveled, they had no idea where they had money before. They would just they would just go. If they had to walk, they would walk there. They could walk tens of miles, and then somebody would give them a ride. They would go onto a train, and when the conductor came, they would jump to the second train. And no 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 shaykhs with, with any with any with any uh, of of of, of um, what you would call normalcy. I, I want to tell you, it's his yeshiva, he built his yeshivas where he wasn't really the Rosh Hashiva in a certain sense. He didn't take any Rosh Hashivas. I think he was afraid of having, of overshadowing the Musa with learning. He didn't, he felt very strongly that this is the only thing that will save Kali Yisrael, is Musa and learning it with such intensity and no, n- no concessions of, of, of Midas Emes. So he created a yeshiva. So it, the, every yeshiva was like two older bachim who were strong by the Musa were the heads of it. They were the, the, the Rosh Hashivas, the Mashkiach. They would have an older young man saying a Chabura, but no Rosh Hashivas. Um, and they would come together, the heads of the yeshivas would come together once a year. They would have an Asifa. And it was very democratic. They would vote on issues. And the altar didn't, the altar would not mix in. If the Rav Tziba wanted it one way or another way, that's how it would go. And um, they made Takanis. He would work with Yechidim. He would go around at the Sasif and pick out 
this person, this person, the other person talked to them. Some people give Musa to, some people give to. But, but it was, he wanted it, it's not me, it's the yeshivas and the derech. He, I mean, we talk about a person who was, you know, selfless. Probably the two most difficult things we talked about him leaving his wife and children, giving his children away for the, you know, basically for being raised by others. His son-in-law, Reb Chaim Shalavitz's father, was a tremendous Talmud Chacham Shalazbal Masbir. He was Rosh Hashiva in, in, in Nevada. He took him to be the Rosh Hashiva. He was more, he wasn't such a Musa person, um, Reb Alta, Reb Alta. And he, um, and twice he overran, they would, after his shir, they would sit, and they would talk and learning. And Musa said it was, should be afterwards. And the, the talking and learning flowed over into Musa Seder. The first time it happened, the altar warned him that it should never happen again. The second time it happened, the altar threw him out and never to see him again. Threw him out and threw something at him, tossed at something and threw it out. And, and he was never, and, and he would never ever, it, it had anything to do with him again. In, incredible um, He had a son who was brilliant and was involved in the yeshiva and they had some disagreement he banished his son from the yeshiva and that was it to him this is the fire that will survive and he's he's, he's this is the parashemen and nothing else is he can't let any personal gear no personal gear touch it, it it's called nefesh that we have no shaykhist understanding in the in those years during world war one and that terrible tkufa this yeshiva survived in ways that are unthinkable. They never had what to eat. They were being persecuted. They were running from place to place. And you couldn't stop them. They would take the Bachrim. I mean, they would cross over the borders here, there, the other place. They would be caught. They'd be arrested. They'd be put up to be shot. And they were always calm. And they would ask them, where, where are your passports? They would put themselves in Sharm. We're, I'm serious. That, 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 that was the, and and you know they would they would beat them up and then they let them go or whatever. The, the stories are just incredible stories. They wouldn't have to eat for days and then somebody would somehow come along and 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 bring them food. Um, it it was an unusual survival for unusual times. Um, and it's the only way to explain it. That, that kept that was the fire of Torah, and a lot of the people that made it to big issues and became big names started there. Um, that was uh, he was nifted in 1920. They stayed in Russia another two years. The communists had come in already at the end of World War One, 18 or so, 17, 18. Um, they they struggled for two more years on the communism with horrendous mysterious nefesh. They finally asked the Chavetz Chaim Shailuk. Chavetz Chaim said they should leave Russia, and they went to Poland. And for the next 20 years, until until the end of the war, until until the beginning of war, until, until the beginning of, of World War II, they were all over Poland. Also made 70, 80 yeshivas in Poland um, with the same derech, and saved a lot of kids. A lot of kids stayed from and became yeshiva like because of of Navarik. After the war. Very little survived of it. They had a they had kolom named Beisayev. The gates of the yeshiva is called Beisayev. Um, in that Israel, there's Beisayev and so on. Their names. I mean, the kolom, the wonderful commentary. That's it. The only place that had shaykhs was the one in France for Gersh Liebman. His hanhagis was still the all the way. 
his stories of Bitochen were incredible. I'll tell over a story again. Maybe it could die sometime to devote uh, uh, to Rabbi Yashlim himself because his story is incredible. This I read when he was Nifta. He arrived to America, and he at the airport when he got off the plane, he had no money. Obviously, that's that's the Vardik. and he decided that he needs um, fifty dollars for coffee or whatever it is. So he took a cab, he didn't know who he could go to, so he remembered he knew Rabbi Yosef Friedensen. Rabbi Yosef Friedensen um, was the Yiddish, uh, he was Nagurus Yisrael, he was the head, he was the editor of the Yiddish newspaper. A fine Yid, a very fine Yid. So, so he, he took a cab to, to, um, to the Aguda building in Manhattan and he would answer Rabbi Yosef Friedensen for $50 from the cab. He didn't realize it was July 4th and nobody was working anywhere. But Rabbi Yosef Finnison had forgotten the papers he needed to work on in the office. And he made a special trip on a Sunday morning and his cab drives up as he's getting in the building. And he asks him, and he says, Rabbi Gershwitz, he says, I just got off the plane, I need $50 for the cab. Um, and I came to you. He said, you know, I, I was never supposed to be here and this and that. He said, but that's what I came for. So he pulls out $100 and says, here, take. So Yashua said, no, I need $50 for you and plus, it, you know, whatever was cost a token to Brooklyn and I'm fine. So I'm not going to take a penny more. And he took the $50 plus, plus whatever it is and then he paid it to me at the end. That, that was not Haggis. It, it's, it was, it was inc- it not, not something that has any shaykhs to Malcolm of Teva and so on. Um, I, I want to sort of look at it, sum it up a little bit, and get a sense of, of, of that, that whole kufa and everything. It, it was a phenomenon that was an incredible phenomenon. And it was like a burst of light that lasted a, 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 for a tkufa, and, it, and then it was gone. I think, I, I guess, the, 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 the tkufa that it came up was a tkufa of revolutions in the world. The world was revolting. The world was changing. The world was going through incredible, incredible changes, <coughs> movements. Um, countries were breaking up. Empires were breaking up. The Austro-Hungarian Empire broke up. Communism came to the world. Um, it, it, it was incredible. It, it was a tkuf of incredibly dynamic changes. The Zeluma saying Kedusha to people that were willing to sacrifice their lives and for the for the for sh- and and like the communists who knew no boundaries and were going to do something, this was the tzaddikusha of it. I mean, this whole music of, of of the way the way it went about it. It's incredible that people who went to the Vardik, There was a very famous person. Who, there were people in the Vardik who went off the derech also. Um, one of them went off the derech in the early years of Vardik. And the altar was so shaken. He said this was his biggest masmid, most erlach He went home for ben asmanim, never came back, and became a fry. And he said, "There's no eitzah. There's no way to compromise with the world today. If you leave a crack open, you're gone. The only way to do today is no pshars." But someone else, um, Netanyahu's father-in-law, who passed away recently, Ben Arzi, was an avadik yeshiva and he came to Eretz Yisrael. Aldas to make an Avadik Yeshiva. He, um, but there was nothing doing. And he, the same Kaychis of, of, of sort of becoming all fired up, he ended up becoming an ardent Zionist, etc. But he wrote a book at 92, 93 about the Vardik. 
extremely positive. It's more like a story of somebody going to the Vardic and different people. He said that basically it's all true. He just you know different names, but but it it left an, an impression on people. It was powerful and it was emis. People you could agree or disagree, but the midas emis that was there was unmistaken. Um, this same boy that I learned with, he was a very smart guy. Somebody a little bit younger than me. He told me he, he had he was there in Paris for I think two years and then he came down to Israel. He said he, he it was it was olam haba there. He said living with such a sharp emis was an incredible experience. And he said he would have had a nervous breakdown if he would have stayed any longer. Those are the two <laughs> observations. And, and, and there's something to it. it it's, the world can't live. It's like Rav Yechoi, when, you know, when he came out of the Meirah and he said, how could people be Oisik in, in Havlil Mahazah? And he told him, and he, and he got burnt, and he told him to come back again. It, it was an incredibly illuminating uh, moment in Karsal's history. That type of kitsonius of emis and bitochen and and uh, no and selflessness. I, I don't know if the world can exist like that, but without having that as some sort of um, measuring stick, some sort of uh, way of, of of being able to see at least that there was something like that. Um, the incredible was an incredible person, incredible tkufa, and it's something that whether or not. Dashkocha meant it to be the derech forever, but but it's something to be misbeinin that a person can do things. He he you know he said people can do so much more than they think they can, and he proved it. He never ever slowed down. Nothing, being sick, being cold, being hot. He was oblivious, oblivious. Nothing in the world mattered. His last year in Kibbutz, before he got sick, even his his point his theme was to spend your life affirming the emis, to give your life away, to spend your life away affirming the emis. That's what life is about. Um, and, and he proved it. He proved that a person can go through life and nothing, no, no midah, as a, maybe as a compliment to the story I told you about how he loved his family, how he threw his son-in-law out, how he um, threw out his son without looking back I want, to hear, I want to tell you a second side of his personality. This I heard from his daughter, the Rebetzin Yafaz Ghanavracha. She said that near where they lived, she was already from the youngest, so he was home. They, were, they, were, they lived near Yeshiva. Right near where they lived, there was like a place that they had horses and buggies. And the, the, and the, um, the derech was when, when a guy would come from a long journey, he would drive his horse and buggy up to the stop, and he would like bring it to a halt with a, a whip. Like you know, he, he would come galloping in and give a big knock the horse. That's that's how that they did. Her father could never look at it because of the cruelty. He, he because Rahman is an animal. He he was a very sensitive person, very very um, you know soft. But Emmis is Emmis. And, and, and therefore, he, not one emotion of his came into play when it was Neged Emes. You know, this is Torah, this is the yeshiva, the yeshiva is not his, and therefore his family has no shaykhs to it. it Torah has to survive, and the only way it'll survive is through this. This is the only little light of Emes that there is in, 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 in the world. And, and nobody, even his son, shouldn't be able <laughs> to extinguish that light. The, 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 and this is a person who is very, very gentle with Teva. 
Bechlal, when you read the stories, it seems like the person is kind of very far from, very whatever. And the people who met him said they've never met such, such a person full of life, upbeat, cheerful, um, constantly. He, he, he was a very energetic, positive person. Um, and it was with that koach that he demanded so much. He wasn't a fakvetched person. He, he wasn't a, a depressed fakvetched person. He was a person full of energy and life. And, and that's how he expressed it. Al Kaponim, his Yorzai is Yitzayin Kislev, and it's something that um, is, 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 a, is, a, is a ha'ara and a very dark Kuf and Kalei uh, history that at least the light of it still remains to some degree. Some. Ave Nishamai